Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Stories, Tales, Myths, and Legends podcast. My name is Nathan, and each week I dive into the history of human culture for a story, tale, myth, or legend from anywhere in the world and bring it to you here for you to consider. This week I'm bringing you a story from a book titled Korean Tales, translated from Korean folklore by H.N. Allen, M.D., who served as a foreign secretary. This book was published in 1889 by G.P. Putnam's Sons. The story is titled The Enchanted Wine Jug or Why the Cat and Dog Are Enemies. I hope you enjoy. The Enchanted Wine Jug or Why the Cat and Dog Are Enemies. In ancient times, there lived an old gray-haired man by the river's bank where the ferry boats land. He was poor but honest, and compelled to earn his own food, he kept a little wine shop which, small though it was, possessed quite a local reputation, for the aged proprietor would permit no quarreling on his premises, and sold only one brand of wine, and it was of really excellent quality. He did not keep a pot of broth simmering over the coals at his door to tempt the passerby and thus increase his thirst on leaving. The old man rather preferred the customers who brought their own little long-necked bottles and carried the drink back to their homes. There were some peculiarities, almost mysteries, about the little wine shop. The old man had apparently always been there and had never seemed any younger. His wine never gave out, no matter how great might be the local thirst yet he was never seen to take or make a new supply. Nor had he a great array of vessels in a shop. On the contrary, he always seemed to pour the wine out of the one and same old bottle, the long, slender neck of which was black and shiny from being so often tipped in his old hand while the generous, warming stream gurgled outward toward the bowl. This had long ceased to be the matter of inquiry, however, and only upon the advent of a stranger of an inquiring mind would the subject be rediscussed. The neighbors were assured that the old man was thoroughly good, and his wine was better. Furthermore, he sold it as reasonably as other men sold a much inferior article. And more than this, they did not care to know, or at least if they once did care, they had gotten over it, and now they were content to let well enough alone. I said the old man had no children. That is true. Yet he had that which in a slight degree took the place of children, in that they were his daily care, his constant companions, and the partners of his bed and board. These deputy children were none other than the good-natured old dog with a laughing face and eyes, long silken ears that were ever on alert, yet too soft to stand erect, a chunky neck, and a large round body covered with long, soft, tan hair and ending in a bushy tail. He was the very impersonation of canine wisdom and good nature, and seldom became ruffled unless he saw his master worried by the ill behavior of one of his patrons, or when a festive flea persisted in attacking him on all sides at once. His fellow, a cat, would sometimes assist on the onslaught when the dog was about to be defeated and completely ruffled by his tormentor. This Thomas was also a character in his own way, and through the past days when his chief ambition had been to catch his tail, he had such a strong vein of humor running through him that his age could not subdue his frivolous propensities. He had been known to drop a dead mouse upon the dog's nose from the counter while the latter was endeavoring to get a quiet nap, 
and then he would blow up his tail as a balloon, hump his back, and look utterly shocked at such conduct as the startled dog nearly jumped out of his skin, and growling horribly, tore around as though he were either in chase of a wild beast or being chased by one. This happy couple lived in the greatest contentment with the old man. They slept in the king room with him at night and enjoyed the warm stone floor with its slick oil paper covering as much as did their master. When the old man would go out on a mild moonlit night to enjoy a pipe of tobacco and gaze at the stars, his companions would rush out and announce to the world that they were not asleep, but ready to encounter any and everything that the darkness might bring forth, so long as it did not enter their master's private court of which they were in possession. These two were fair-weather companions up to this time. They had not been with the old man when a bowl of rice was a luxury. Their days did not antedate the period of the successful wine shop history. The old man, however, often recalled those former days with a shudder and thought with great complacency of the time when he had befriended a divine being in the form of a wary human traveler to whom he gave the last drink his jug contained and how, when the contents of the little jug had gurgled down the stranger's throat in a long unbroken draught, the stranger had given him a trifling little thing that looked like a bit of amber, saying, Drop this into your jug, old man, and so long as it remains there, you will never want for a drink. He did so, and sure enough the jug was heavy with something, so that he raised it to his lips, and, could he believe it? A delicious stream of wine poured down his parched throat. He took the jug down and peered into its black depths. He shook its sides, causing the elf within to dance and laugh aloud, and shutting his eyes, again he took another long draught. Then, meaning well, he remembered the stranger, and he was about to offer him a drink when he discovered that he was all alone, and began to wonder at the strange circumstance and to think what he was to do. I can't sit here and drink all the time, or I will be a drunk, and some thief will carry away my jug. I can't live on wine alone, yet I dare not leave this strange thing while I seek for work. Like many another to whom fortune has just come, he knew not for a time what to do with his good luck. Finally, he hit upon the scheme of keeping a wine shop, the success of which we have seen, and have perhaps refused the old man credit for the wisdom he displayed in continuing on in a small scale rather than in exciting unpleasant curiosity and official oppression by turning up his jug and attempting to produce wine at wholesale. The dog and the cat knew the secret and had an ever-watchful eye upon the jug, which was never for a moment out of sight of one of the three pairs of eyes. As the brightest day must end in gloom, however, so was this pleasant state soon to be marred by a most sad and far-reaching accident. One day, the news flashed around the neighborhood that the old man's supply of wine was exhausted. Not a drop remained in his jug, and he had no more with which to refill it. Each man, on hearing the news, ran to see if it were indeed true, and the little straw-thatched hut and its small court encircled by a mud wall were soon filled with anxious seekers after the truth. The old man admitted the statement to be true, but had little to say. While the dog's ears hung neglectedly over his cheeks, his eyes drooped and he looked as though he might be asleep, but for the persistent manner in which he refused to lie down, but dignifiedly bore his position of the sorrow sitting upright with a bowed head. Thomas seemed to have been charged with agitation enough for the whole family. 
He walked nervously about the floor till he felt that injustice to his tail demanded a higher plane, where shoes could not offend, and then he betook himself to the counter, and later to the beam which supported the roof and made a sort of cats and rats attic under the thatch. All condoled with the old man, and not one but regretted their supply of cheap good wine was exhausted. The old man offered no explanation, though he had about concluded in his own mind, as no one knew the secret, he must have in some way poured the bit of amber into a customer's jug. But who possessed the jug he could not surmise, nor could he think of any way of reclaiming it. He talked the matter over carefully and fully to himself at night, and the dog and cat listened attentively, winking knowingly at each other, and puzzling their brains much as to what was to be done and how they were to assist their kind old friend. At last the old man fell asleep, and then sitting down face to face by his side, the dog and cat began a discussion. I am sure, says the cat, that I can detect the thing if I only come within a smelling distance of it, but how do we know where to look for it? That was the puzzler, but the dog proposed that they make a search through every house in the neighborhood. We can go on a mere look-see, you know, and while you call on all the cats indoors and keep your smellers open, I will chat with the dogs outside, and if you smell anything, you can tell me. The plan seemed to be the only good one, and it was adopted that very night. They were not cast down because their first search was unsuccessful and continued their work night after night. Sometimes their calls were not appreciated, and in a few cases they had to clear the field by battle before they could go on with the search. No house was neglected, however, and in due time they had done the whole neighborhood, but with no success. They then determined that it must have been carried to the other side of the river, to which they decided to extend their search as soon as the water was frozen over so that they could cross on the ice, for they knew they would not be allowed in the crowded ferry boats, and while the dog could swim, he knew that the water was too icy for that. As it soon grew very cold, the river froze so solidly that bull carts, ponies, and all passed over the ice, and so it remained for nearly two months, allowing the search party to return each morning to their poor old master who seemed completely broken up by his loss and did not venture away from his door except to buy a few provisions which his little fund of savings would allow. Time flew by without bringing success to the faithful comrades, and the old man began to think that they too were deserting him as his old customers had done. It was nearing time for the spring thaw and freshet, when one night as the cat was chasing around over the roof timbers, in a house away to the outside of the settlement across the river, he detected an odor that caused him to stop so suddenly as to nearly precipitate himself upon a sleeping man on the floor below. He carefully traced up the odor and found that it came from a soapstone tobacco box that sat atop a high clothes press nearby. The box was dusty with neglect, and Thomas concluded that the possessor had accidentally turned the coveted gem, from which the odor came, out into his wine bowl, and not knowing its nature, had put it into the stone box rather than throw it away. The lid was so securely fastened that the box seemed to be one solid piece, and in despair of opening it, the cat went outside to consult the superior wisdom of the dog and see what could be done. I can't get up there, said the dog, nor can you bring me the box, or I might break it. I cannot move the thing, or I might push it off and let it fall to the floor and break, said the cat. So after explaining the things that they could not do, the dog finally hit upon a plan that they might perhaps successfully carry out. 
I will tell you, said he, you must go and see the chief of the rat guild in this neighborhood. Tell him that if he were to help you in this matter, we will both let him alone for ten years and not hurt even a mouse of them. But what good is that going to do? Why, don't you see? The stone is no harder than some wood, and they can take turns at it until they gnaw a hole through it, and we can easily get the gem. The cat bowed before the marvelous judgment of the dog and went off to accomplish the somewhat difficult task of obtaining an interview with the master rat. Meanwhile, the dog wagged his ears and tail and strode about with a swinging stride in imitation of the great official who occasionally walked past his master's door and who seemed to denote by his haughty gait his superiority to other men. His importance made him impudent, and when the cat returned, to his dismay, he found his friend engaged in a genuine fight with a lot of curs who had dared to intrude upon his period of self-congratulation. Thomas mounted the nearest wall and howled so lustily that the inmates of the house awakened by the uproar came out and dispersed the contestants. The cat had found the rat, who upon being assured safety came to the mouth of his hole and listened attentively to the proposition. It is needless to say he accepted it, and a contract was made forthwith. It was arranged that work was to begin at once, and be continued by relays as long as they could work undisturbed, and when the box was perforated, the cat was to be summoned. The ice had broken up now, and the pair could not return home very easily, so they waited about the neighborhood for some months, picking up scant living and making friends and not a few enemies, for they were a proud pair and ready to fight on provocation. It was warm weather when one night the cat almost forgot his compact as he saw a big fat rat slinking along towards him. He crouched low and dug his long claws into the earth while every nerve seemed on the jump. But before he was ready to spring upon his prey, he fortunately remembered his contract. It was just in time, too, for the rat was none other than the party to the contract. Such a mistake at that time would have been fatal to their object. The rat announced that the hole was completed, but was so small at the inside end that they were at a loss to know how to get the gem out, unless the cat could reach it with his paw. Having acquainted the dog with the good news, the cat hurried off to see for himself. He could introduce his paw, but the object was at the other end of the box and he could not quite reach it. They were in a dilemma and were about to give up when the cat went again to consult with the dog. The latter promptly told them to put a mouse into the box and let him bring out the gem. They did so, but the hole was too small for the little fellow and his load to get out at the same time so that much pushing and pulling had to be done before they were successful. They got it safely at last, however, and gave it at once to the dog for safekeeping. Then, with much purring and wagging of tails, the contract of friendship was again renewed, and the strange party broke up, the rats to go and jubilate over their safety, the dog and cat to carry the good news to their mourning master. Again, canine wisdom was called into play in devising a means for crossing the river. Now the happy dog was equal to such a trifling thing as this, however, and instructed the cat that he must take the gem in his mouth, hold it well between his teeth, and then mount the dog's back, where he could hold firmly on the long hair of his neck while he swam across the river. This was agreed upon, and arriving at the river, they put the plan into execution. All went well until they neared the opposite bank, 
a party of schoolchildren chanced to notice them coming, and after their amazement at the strange sight wore away, they burst into uproarious laughter, which increased the more they looked at the absurd sight. They clapped their hands and danced with glee, while some fell on the ground and rolled about in exhaustion of merriment at seeing the cat astride a dog's back being ferried across the river. The dog was too wary and consequently matter-of-fact to see much fun in it, but the cat shook his sides till his agitation caused the dog to take in great gulps of water in attempting to keep his head up. This but increased the cat's merriment till he broke out in a laugh as hearty as that of the children and in doing so dropped the precious gem into the water. The dog, seeing the sad accident, dove at once for the gem, regardless of the cat, who could not let go in time and was dragged under the water. Sticking his claws into the dog's skin in agony of suffocation, he caused him so much pain that he missed the object of his search and came to the surface. The cat got ashore in some way, greatly angered at the dog's rude conduct. The latter, however, cared little for that, and as soon as he had shaken the water from his hide, he made a lunge at his unlucky companion, who had lost the result of a half-year's faithful work in one moment of foolishness. Dripping like a drowned cat, Thomas, however, was able to climb the tree, and there he stayed until the sun had dried the water from his fur, and he had spat the water from his innards in the consistent spitting he kept up at his now enemy, who kept barking ferociously about the tree below. The cat knew the dog was dangerous when aroused, and was careful not to descend from his perch until the coast was clear, though at one time he really feared the ugly boys would knock him off with stones as they passed. Once down, he has ever since been careful to avoid the dog, with whom he has never patched up the quarrel. Nor does he wish to do so, for the very sight of the dog causes him to recall the horrible cold dunking and the day spent up in a tree, and involuntarily he spits as though he's filled with river water, and his tail blows up as it had never learned to do till the day when for so long its damp and draggled condition would not permit of its assuming the haughty shape. This accounts for the scarcity of cats and the popularity of dogs. The dog did not give up his efforts even now. He dove many times in vain and spent most of the following days sitting on the river's bank apparently lost in thought. Thus the winter found him, his two chief aims apparently being to find the gem and to kill the cat. The latter kept well out of his way, and the ice now covered the place where the former lay hidden. One day he espied a man spearing fish through a hole in the ice, as was very common. Having a natural desire to be around where anything eatable was being displayed, and feeling a sort of proprietorship in the particular part of the river where the man was fishing, and where he himself had had such a sad experience, he went down and looked on. As a fish came up, something natural seemed to greet his nostrils, and then the man lay down his catch. The dog grabbed it and rushed off in greatest haste. He ran with all his might to his master, who, poor man, was now at the end of his string, and was almost reduced to begging. He therefore was delighted when his faithful old friend brought him so acceptable a present as a fresh fish. He at once commenced dressing it, but when he split it open, to his infinite joy, his long-lost gem fell out of the fish's belly. The dog was too happy to contain himself, but jumping upon his master, he licked him with his tongue and struck him with his paws, barking meanwhile as though he had again treed the cat. As soon as their joy had become somewhat natural, the old man carefully placed the gem in his trunk, from which he took the last money he had, together with some fine clothes, 
relics of his fortunate days. He had feared he must soon pawn these clothes, and had even shown them to brokers. But now he took them out to put them on, as his fortune had returned to him. Leaving the fish baking on the coals, he donned his fine clothes, and taking the last of his money, he went and purchased wine for his feast, and for a beginning. For he knew that once he placed the gem back in the jug, the supply of wine would not cease. On his return, he and the good old dog made a happy feast of the generous fish, and the old man completely recovered his spirits when he had quaffed deeply of the familiar liquid to which his mouth was now such a stranger. Going to his trunk directly, he found to his amazement that it contained another suit of clothes exactly like the first ones he had removed, while there lay also a broken string of cash of just the amount which he had previously taken out. Sitting down to think, the whole truth dawned upon him, and he saw how he had abused his privilege before in being content to use his talisman simply to run a wine shop, while he might have had money and everything else in abundance by simply giving the charm a chance to work. Acting upon this principle, the old man eventually became immensely wealthy, for he could always duplicate anything with his piece of amber. He carefully tended his faithful dog, who never in his remaining days molested a rat, and never lost an opportunity to attack every cat he saw. I hope you enjoyed this reading of The Enchanted Wine Jug, translated by H.N. Allen, M.D. If you liked this podcast, be sure to subscribe and maybe write a review. I'll bring you another story, tale, myth, or legend next week. Thanks for listening.